Welcome everybody to the Big Cat People's series of podcasts. And in the first in this series, we've called it Our Story, Becoming the Big Cat People. And we've broken it down into 10 episodes. And the first of the episodes, today's episode, is In Search of Africa. So let's begin. How did a young child, a young boy growing up on a farm in Berkshire, end up following their dream, realizing their dream of doing something with wildlife in Africa. Well, I was born in London, 1949, St. George's Hospital overlooking Hyde Park, and my dad was an architect, and he died when I was two years old. He was only 42. He had a brain tumor. And he had always dreamed of retiring to a small holding which he'd bought between Maidenhead and Cookham in Berkshire. Beautiful little spot. Not a big small holding. Well, small holding's a small holding, isn't it? It was only, I think, about 20 or 30 acres. And when he died, my mum decided it had been my dad's dream to retire there. And so she was going to take the three children, myself, two years old, my sister, 18 months older than me, Caroline, and then an older brother, Clive, who was 14 years older than me. And she really, I think, wanted to honour my father by doing that, because it was very, very hard work. She kept chickens, we had Jersey cows, all that wonderful butter and that thick golden cream scones, sponge cakes, I can still remember it now, and the smell of fresh milk, and rabbits, and she bred dogs, bull terriers, corgis, and so she made a living, but it was very, very hard work. And my overriding memory of my mum in those days was in brown dungarees, uh, Wellington boots, and, and sort of trying to fight off a sow, a pig who was rolling on the litter she'd just given birth to. And so, but at the same time, it was a, an idyllic childhood for myself and my sister. And I can always remember those early days just roaming around through the fields and into a wood. We had a wood which was called Redlands. And we would have all kinds of adventures. And the high point would be to come back with little sticklebacks or tadpoles, even better. And watch the nature of life. Watch the wonder of nature evolving and revealing itself right in front of our eyes. And one of the things which facilitated for me and encouraged me in that love of nature and in being a naturalist and observing what I was seeing out in the wilds was my ability to draw, to draw. So my dad, architect to the Duke of Westminster estate, the Grosvenor estate up in London, senior architect, surveyor. Uh, and I must have inherited that facility because my brother too could always draw and paint. And so I would have my notebook and I would make sketches of the things that I saw, the bird's nests. And I have to admit, in those days, it was a time when people used to collect bird's eggs and butterflies and all kinds of insects. Of course, things have changed since then. But my fascination with nature was reinforced by my ability to draw, which in a sense made me look even closer. Because if you draw or if you photograph, I believe you see in much greater detail. You're forced to look 
at every nuance of your subject, a butterfly, a dormouse, a rabbit. And so there was I with this passion for nature. And it was stimulated. My heroes in those days were people like Sir Peter Scott, son of Captain Scott of the Antarctic, who with his men perished on the return journey, having got to the, finally to the South Pole in the early 1900s, only to find that the Norwegian Amazon and his team had got there before him. And then he and his colleagues on the way back, just a few miles from rescue from their stores, from camp, they died. They didn't make it. And Sir Peter Scott was a wonderful artist. I remember my dad loved Peter Scott's work. Images, watercolours, oil paintings of mallards, of ducks rising over a marsh at sunrise or sunset. And Peter Scott founded the Wildfowl or the Waterfowl Trust at Slimbridge. And there were images of Peter Scott in his study with a window onto wilderness looking out over this lake where swans would arrive on migration back each year. And he wrote a book and I read his book and his life story. And I just thought, imagine that kind of life of being in nature, drawing, painting, earning your keep, doing what you loved. And so as I grew up on the farm, I obviously had to start thinking about what I might be doing. Well, academically, I wasn't really top drawer. My sister seemed to breeze through all of her exams very easily and I was having trouble with my writing and my arithmetic. And when, to my horror, I took the entrance exam to the school that my father had been to, Christ Hospital, the Blue Coat School in Horsham, founded in the 1500s by Edward VI, Henry VIII's son, who died at an early age and who founded this school which basically was to try and help orphans and children underprivileged, undernourished, to get a good education. And it was supported by city guilds and philanthropy, Christ Hospital. And it burned down in a fire in London, and it eventually relocated to Horsham in Sussex. And my dad had been there. He'd been a governor before he died of the school. My godfather had been to the school Caroline, my sister, was at the girls' Christ Hospital in St Albans. In those days, it was separate boys' and girls' school. And my aunt had been to the girls' school, the girls' Christ Hospital. So this was this legacy, this history, this pressure, if you like, but willingly accepted by me because my mum had, in a sense, made my father my hero. He was good at whatever he turned his hands to. He could draw. He could earn a good living in his career. He was doing what he loved. And so I desperately wanted to go to Christ Hospital to follow in his footsteps. But I failed the exam. I always remember that brown envelope, mum calling me into her room, opening the envelope, anticipation, hope. And it just said, I'm sorry, but you didn't pass the exam. And it was pretty much unheard of that you got a second chance. But somehow my mum, a very powerful character, very determined spoke to the treasurer, the fact my dad had been a governor, who knows, I got a second chance. And goodness me, everybody was recruited to try and get little Johnny's maths and writing and reading up to scratch. And I passed and I got to the school. And just maybe a year prior to that, an incident happened which would change 
the course of my life. Because even though outwardly I was enthusiastic, I was a chatterbox, I was lively, friendly, got on well with people, popular, outgoing, something happened on one fateful day on the farm. I was playing with a a childhood friend, I can't even remember who it was, a boy. And we were on our farm. My big brother Clive was there. And we were in the grain store. And there were sacks of grain piled up on one side of the of the store. And then there were some hay bales. And we were having fun falling off the um, the sacks of grain and onto the hay bales. And right next to one of the hay bales, hay bales was a 40-gallon drum, 200 litres, with no lid on it. So a metal rim of which I then slipped off the grain bags and fell with my legs apart down onto the rim. Bang. Ouch. I was so shocked that I couldn't even speak. I don't even know if I cried out or maybe I did, but whatever it was, I then was absolutely struck dumb. And my friend came running over, looking at me, you know, are you okay? And then into the open, through the open door came my brother Clive. And he said, what what happened? What's going on? And in that fateful moment, embarrassed by where I'd fallen, whatever it might have been, not wanting him to look and check and see if I was okay, I I just mumbled, it's okay, I'm fine. I, I just banged my shin. Well, there was no mark there. And anyway, my my brother sort of rubbed my shin and, you know, jollied me along and I I hobbled off. And I remember it was mince and rice, my favourite lunch that my mum had cooked. And I could not eat a mouthful. So then what? I just buried that incident. But overlain on it was a fear, I think, of dying. I'd lost my dad. I knew about death. I knew that people weren't necessarily going to be in your life forever, that we weren't going to be there forever. I was having thoughts about living and dying that most young children don't even, doesn't even appear on their radar. They're having too much fun. But this shadow gradually seeped over me and I didn't tell anybody what had happened. I just buried it. I kept that truth and I remember my mum saying to me one time, I had a new bicycle and I was trying to sit on the saddle, this hard saddle, saddle, and oh my goodness, my groin, it was so sore. And I was so excited about the new bike. And my mum said, you know, what? are you okay? What's the matter? Something's not right. And I said, no, 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 it's fine. And I kept that secret for years and years and years. But what happened then was I became totally convinced that because I hadn't had that injury checked, that somehow something awful was going to happen. I was going to get cancer. I was going to die. Something untoward was going to happen to me in terms of my health. And I became a hypochondriac, totally caught up in, you know, every little nuance of what was happening to me. Was it okay? But I didn't tell anybody about it. I kept it just to myself. And so outwardly, as I say, full of beans, and I continued to be like that, but behind it, 
I was just mulling over every so often. This anxiety would just grip me like a vice grip. And as I got older, I would go off and I'd read. I'd go to foils in London and I'd go to the medical section and I'd pick out books and I, I would read up on whatever it was I thought maybe that I was going to get. I thought I had Cushing's disease. I thought there was a, a lump developing in on one side of my face and I would go endlessly at times trying to break the cycle I'd go and look in the mirror and check this side left side right side I'd even say to people can you can you see is there something anyway it took me right the way through till probably when I met Angie and I just focused finally on everything else other than my own well-being and I think probably by that time I'd reached almost the age that my dad was when he died and but the hold that being convinced of something, the power of the mind to play tricks on you, the power of the mind to actually alter your life and alter your reality uh, was, was massive. And I didn't seek treatment. I should have. I didn't seek help. I, I used to talk to my mum about it eventually. Years and years later, I told her what had happened and, and explained to her why I would get so anxious about, you know, getting ill or having a problem or this and that. And she was amazing. She'd always say, look, we'll get through this. Don't worry. And I would do these endless rounds of going to doctors, you know, having tests, asking them to believe, telling me and, and getting furious if somebody said, maybe it's your head that needs looking at, not not your, your, your knee or your back or your whatever else it might be. So there was a huge lesson there for me. And I went to school. I had that with me all the way through school. I was successful. I was great at sport, but I didn't really focus on my work. I loved biology. I loved art. And it took me a while to realize that I needed to really pick up my game and, and, and not just think it was all about being successful in the boxing ring or on the rugby field or on the basketball course, but that I was going to have to keep a, a, you know, keep up with my sister who was 18 months ahead of me and just flying along without little effort, passing her exams, getting her A-levels, great at languages. I was hopeless. And so I, I did finally realize that actually all I needed to do was to apply myself to work hard. And once I started doing that, I did well enough to pass all my O-levels. I only took seven, but I passed them all. I was so shocked that I had that I rang the school up, spoke to the maths master. Are you sure that you know, more of that uncertainty are you sure? It says all past all. He said, no, we, we were actually a little bit surprised too, but fantastic, well done. And my housemaster, who knew me well and knew that motivating me, all he had to do was to give me a sense that maybe you can't do this. And I would think you've got to be joking. Yes, I can. And saying, you know, it'll be a different story with your A-levels. Well, I took my A-levels, geography, biology, but I didn't get grades which were good enough to get me to university, so I retook them, stayed on an extra year, got good enough grades, and was then headed for Queen's University in Belfast, where I was going to read zoology. And through that whole period, this love of nature, this wanting to do something with wildlife, I took an O-level in biology off my own back. It wasn't offered at Christ Hospital, it was general science, but I applied myself, I got the papers, I got special permission, I learned it up and I got um, a grade A. So that passion for wildlife, reinforced by people like Peter Scott and his TV series, look, by Armand and Michaela Dennis on safari, this couple in a Land Rover, 
roaming Africa, particularly East Africa, having adventures, looking at big cats, at animals, and just living a life. And I thought, my goodness, I'd love to do that. I subscribed to Animals magazine. I think the first issue was something like 1960, and avidly would just pore over these stories. And particularly about Africa, because as much as my roaming around the woodlands in in Redlands on our farm, of looking for stoats and for foxes, maybe even a deer, and just watching, looking, fascinated by these animals, badgers, oh my goodness, imagine. But it wasn't elephants. It wasn't lions, it wasn't big cats, it wasn't the wildebeest migration. As much as I loved it, it paled by comparison with those bigger, larger-than-life creatures that I was watching on these TV shows on safari in the 60s. And then the film, Born Free, the story of Joy and George Adamson, their successful reintroduction or introduction of a wild-born lioness, one of three cubs, rescued after George shot the mother because the residents, the community, were worried that this lioness was aggressive and that might injure somebody. In fact, all she was wanting to do was protect the place where she had her cubs. And they raised that one of those three cubs, and they called her Elsa. And they then managed to do what was deemed the impossible, to reintroduce her back into the wilds of Africa in Meru National Park in Kenya. And they, in doing it, I think, were the first to really show that these extraordinary animals were not just, you couldn't pigeonhole them as other than us, of animals, but actually that each was an individual, and Elsa certainly was. Wonderful pictures of Joy lying on a camp bed and Elsa lying along beside her. And they wrote a book, and I think it was translated into 75 lang- in 25 languages, sold 5 million copies. It's still in print to this day. And then a film was made, 1966. I sat in a cinema like many other people, enraptured, totally riveted by seeing Virginia McKenna, who recently was made a dame, wonderful, and her husband, Bill Travers, who played the parts of Joy and George Adamson in the film of Born Free, 1966, me in a cinema, just thinking again, if I could only have that for my life. And so there was this this sort of, you know, this push towards Africa of Going in search of Africa, I needed to go there and see it for myself. Reading books, looking at television shows, reading magazines, hearing of other people's adventures, I had to go. And at that same time, I remember seeing a book which my brother's wife, whose brother worked in South Africa, had sent over. And it was called Jock of the Bushveld. It was the story of a bull terrier and the farmer whose was his owner, and a farm in an area which today was probably part of the Kruger National Park, 20,000 square kilometres of wilderness in southern Africa. And this book was illustrated with these wonderful drawings, pen and ink drawings by E. Caldwell, 
and written by Sir Percy Fitzpatrick. And it told these incredibly emotional, exciting, adventure stories of life on the farm in the wilds of Africa, of meetings with baboons and Jock's endless battles with the baboons and with leopards. And the leopard was a creature that really in some ways took me to Africa. Because if there's one animal at that point that I was totally in love with, fascinated by, it was the leopard, the cat that walks on silent paws, a spotted presence, sunlight and shadows. And the highlight for me on our farm was to once a year go up to Regent's Park, where my gran or my auntie lived, and she would take us to Regent's Park Zoo. And I would go in search of seeing the lions being fed and stand outside the leopard enclosure. There'd be a darkened cave and often the leopard wouldn't reveal itself. And of course now I know much more. And I know that that's just normal leopard leopard behaviour. Chill out, wait till darkness, come out and hunt for your prey. But that leopard, it encapsulated for me the magic, the mystery, that shadowy world out there in East Africa, born free country. And so I managed to get a place to Queen's University, read zoology, initially thought, you know, should I really be here? Am I clever enough for this? Everybody else seemed to be so smart. They seemed to be winging it. But again, I realized hard work will get you where you want. And because I loved the subject matter, drawing all those specimens, the mammals, the reptiles, in the laboratories, illustrating them with my pen and ink drawings. And that was the thing, those drawings all the way through my life, my drawings, whether it was at school, whether it was O-level, A-level, for my thesis, for my um, degree, people noticed them, people encouraged me. It really caught people's eye. And so drawing, wildlife, those things together were really priorities for me. And after four years, got a 2-1, got a good degree in zoology, and there was some talk about perhaps doing a PhD, and I had a chat with, a, with the professor of zoology at that point, Mr. Owen, Professor Owen. And he said, well, what next? We think you could do well doing a PhD. And I said, yes, but it would be lab work, and I would love, you know, if there was opportunities to study animals in the wild, but studying why check chicks, you know, peck yellow corn or why blackbirds nest at a particular time of the year. That's not what I want. I want something bigger and more exciting. And he said, well, what do you have in mind? And I said, well, what I'd really love to do is to go in search of a life in Africa, to do something with wildlife in Africa. And he just looked at me and I could catch that godfatherly uncle father figure kind of look of concern and he said to me well by chance do you have a is your father wealthy do you have a private income and I smiled and I said well actually no my dad died when I was very young Um, he said well it's a pastime it's the great British pastime you know we're famous for collecting butterflies and doing drawings in the field and and you know nature, country file. But it's not a career. It's a pastime. 
you need to be thinking about a career, about making a living. And I said to him, well, I said, you know, even though I've expressed this wish and this desire to my mum, she's fine with it. She's not going to try and pressure me to be an architect like my dad. She sees this is what I love. But she does say, follow your dream, but don't expect somebody else to pay for it. Anyway, he wished me well. I then went to America for a year, built houses, bought a $300 car, had adventures sleeping in the back of my car, drove all over America, smashed the car to pieces in Biloxi, Mississippi of all places, where the sheriff wondered whether I knew which side of the road they drove on. And then I hitched back up to New York, and then I did six weeks just hitching around Canada and the northern part. And in fact, I'd driven all over the States, all the way down to Acapulco. I loved diving. I'd seen those extraordinary divers diving off the rock faces off the hill hilltops down into the water. I was just incredible. And so I I was adventurous. I was to some degree I was a very fearful little kid. I think that anxiety, the you know, I can put it down to, you know, my mum being a very anxious person, you know, in the wake of my dad dying, bringing up three children, incredibly determined, perseverance, but anxious. And you know, always thinking something terrible might happen to us, rather like it happened with my dad. And so I was fearful as a little person, but I fought back against the fear. That's why I took up boxing. That's why I think maybe I loved rugby and tackling and throwing myself into things. But deep down, there was a certain degree of fear. But I think it pushed me to just challenge myself the whole time. And so sleeping in the back of the car, getting myself into all kind of scrapes, I sort of relished it. I wanted to live at the edge. And going to Africa, to me, would be living at the edge. And as much as I loved America, and it's an extraordinarily, you know, it's, it's a continent. It's like Africa. And so each state, different, different landscapes. And I thought about perhaps doing a study on primates, but it would have been on captive primates through Stony Brook University. So again, I thought about the PhD. I'd taken pictures with a little point and shoot all the way around. I'd followed the wildlife artists and the first American people and their story. I was really into it. But in the back of my mind, I thought, you know what? Wolves and bears and raccoons rather like badgers and red foxes. Wonderful. But I wanted more. And what I wanted was going in search of Africa to find what I'd seen and what I knew was the pinnacle for somebody like me in terms of natural history and the last great place where you could see it. So I, by chance, I thought to myself, well, you know what? I maybe will hitch through Africa. And uh, I knew I was adventurous enough to do it. I'd earned enough money to do it. And then I saw an advertisement. Two Bedford trucks, 36 people, wanted for a, a four-month adventure, three-and-a-half, four-month adventure, from London to Johannesburg in South Africa. This was 1974. I graduated in 1972, went up to university 68 to 72, year in America, now there's this overland trip, 500 pounds or thereabout. Your food, your accommodation, you'd sleep on a camp bed. You could sleep in a tent if you wanted. There was a mosquito net and drive down through Africa. What an adventure. And, you know, perhaps easier and more straightforward than hitching. And so I signed up. 
a mix of Brits, people from the EU, Swiss, Germans, a lot of Aussies and New Zealanders. Great company. And I was determined, having played rugby, I wanted to keep fit. I tried to get everybody involved and let's do some fitness work because I was intent on trying to do one of the options on that trip, which was to climb Mount Kilimanjaro. And in fact, two of us, myself and a great guy from New Zealand called Bob Payne, uh, actually went and did that during the overland trip. We took time out and then rejoined the group. And so off we set. And we had trouble before we'd even got through Europe. Somebody had made the, put the wrong oil in. There was issues with the diff. And I can promise you, I now know what four-wheel drive is all about. And if you're going to drive down through the Sahara and through the Congo and all the way down through Africa, 6,000 miles, nearly four months on the road, you better have the, the right oil and a working diff so as you can get through in four-wheel drive when you need it. So we camped for a while. It snowed in France. We crossed from Spain, Algeciras, into Morocco, where there was once the Barbary lion, North African lion, a big, magnificent creature with a large black mane. No longer. We crossed the Sahara Desert. We had to get those sand tracks off the side of the truck to get through at times, through Algeria, and those incredible bright starry nights, chill as hell, and then the burning heat of the desert, and then down through Nigeria, Cameroon, Central African Republic, and then into Zaire, Democratic Republic of the Congo today, King Leopold's Congo, Conrad's heart of darkness, a country where we just seem to travel through day after day after day, tropical rainforest. I've never drunk so many mugs, tin mugs of tea ever. And it just would come, I'd drink it, you'd pee it out, you'd sweat it out, cup after cup. Your body just said to you, drink, 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 add sugar. Through Zaire, through that incredible tropical rainforest, there were potholes there which were big enough to, for a, a minibus, for a mini miner to just disappear in. And it was the rains, it was November now. But we got through in the truck, and then at one point I kicked my sleeping, uh, my um, mosquito net off the top of my of uh, my camp bed, and in came the mosquitoes. I woke up absolutely covered in bites, and some days later, the racking fever of malaria, along with a really fine dose of amoebic dysentery. I didn't know which way to turn, up one minute, down the next, missed the chance to go and see gorillas at that point in Rwanda. But there was no stopping the trip. We already had lost one of our drivers. Our guides had had to go, had infected mosquito bites, had scratched the hell out of those. He was medivaced out back to England, but I was not going anywhere. I didn't care what it was. This was my dream. This was what I wanted. Standing up in the back of that truck, hanging onto the rails with the canvas rolled back, just living, smelling, breathing Africa. And of course, you realize it's a continent. North Africa, East Africa, Southern Africa, each of them totally different. And so we continued on our way and I had bought a camera. So the trip was 500 pounds, the camera, a Canon EF, semi-automatic, 150, 170 pounds. I had just enough money, 30 pounds to buy a Tamron zoom lens. I think it was an 80 to do 50. And I was passionate at this point about my photography clicking away, imagining all the wonderful pictures I was taking. And I got to Nairobi 
and I took in my roles. I couldn't afford color film at that point. Took in my roles of black and white film. Asked for contact sheets. That would be 36 little thumbnail images on an A4 piece of paper. I had about 30 rolls of film. Took them in. Came back a couple of days later. Walked through the door and I saw the look on the proprietor's face as he recognized it was me coming back all excited. And I said, what's, what's happened? And he said, your films, none of them, they're all nothing, black. He said, there's actually a few. Must have been when you're in North Africa, a couple of camels where the light was very bright. But he said, basically, they're all totally underexposed. And to my horror, I realized I was paying the price for not reading the instruction manual before I took off on my safari of a lifetime of not putting a roll of film through the camera to test it. Because if I had of, or if today's world of digital photography, I'd looked on the back of the camera and I'd have seen, you know, your picture's underexposed, check the histogram. And in fact, what had happened was I had bought an adapter to sync the Tamron lens to the Canon body. I had set the aperture ring to EE, electronic exposure, thinking it was going to do, it was going to handle the aperture while I changed the speed I wanted on the camera. And it wasn't. It was firing away at f22, the size of a pinhole. So no wonder there was only a couple of shots from North Africa. So I went away, crestfallen. I had my memories, of course, but I'd had the biggest lesson and biggest wake-up call for this budding photographer that I needed to just shape up and not rely on anything. Don't presume anything. So now... I end up, we climb Kilimanjaro, Bob and I. I got some version of altitude sickness. I got up to the 18,000 feet, the the initial sort of peak, but not quite the peak, but I was absolutely stuffed at that point. And my guide said, no, just sit, wait for Bob to go the last few meters. And we then came down, but we came down in a single day because there was fuel rationing in Tanzania there. And we needed to catch a bus to get us back into Kenya in time to miss the day when everything was going to close down and also not to miss the truck our overland truck which had given us a deadline meters down at the coast in Mombasa and if you're not there on time the truck continues on its way to Joburg anyway we then instead of taking three days up and two days down we took climbed to the top two o'clock in the morning back down all the way to Moshi to the YMCA that same day I had the porters, of course, running down with our gear on their heads. But I tell you, when we woke up the next morning to catch the bus, Bob and I both looked at each other and I already just, you know, we, we just knew, oh my goodness, that was quite something. So we rejoined the trip and then we headed all the way down to South Africa, to Joburg, where the trip ended. And by that point, to get into South Africa, you needed an onward ticket to be allowed in. And I had an onward boat ticket from Cape Town to Sydney in Australia. I was going to go after my African adventure, go round then via Australia back through Europe and Asia and have gone right the way around the world. But by this point, I was all, all I could think of was selling my ticket and staying in Africa. Because of course I had, when we came down through East Africa, we had passed through the Serengeti and the Masai Mara. And when I saw the Serengeti and those endless open plains speckled in the Mara with a few 
desert dates with some trees, Savannah, Africa, with big cats, my first lions and cheetahs in Serengeti, my first leopard, a beautiful male just lying in the grass at the base of the tree. I realised that what I had fallen in love with in England, in on safari, watching television, on watching the film of Born Free, was Savannah, Africa, big cat country. And the Mara, this little blob, almost one-tenth the size of the Serengeti, but the dry season ultimately would be the dry season holding area for the wildebeest migration and where I would one day make my home. But I realised straight away, oh my goodness, this is it. I have to find a way to be able to stay. First thing, sell the ticket. And in on arrival in Johannesburg, I went to stay at a priory at a religious organization, St. Peter's Priory. And it was the most extraordinary time for me because I wasn't conventionally religious. I'd gone to Sunday school, I'd been confirmed, but I didn't really buy that idea that there was a man up in the heavens with a grey beard and that there was a life after this life. And but what it did do, it cemented very firmly a sense of spirituality, a sense of not thinking that we know everything and leaving the door wide open to other realities and what the nature of the universe might really be. And staying at St. Peter's Priory with the community of the resurrection meant that I was staying, doing a very unusual thing, because this was 1974-75. It was apartheid South Africa. And it was horrifying. I'd grown up in a multicultural society, in a multicultural school. I had black friends. I'd played on a basketball team where I was the only white boy amongst a group of West Indians. My great friend was the son of the captain. And I just was appalled. I was sickened at what I saw there. You know, cocky young white boys walking down the street and forcing, forcing black people to walk in the, in the gutter. And so I was staying at St. Peter's Priory with a great friend of our family, a priest called Simeon Nkwani, who became the first black bishop of Johannesburg, an amazing man. And in fact, a great friend of my brother and my brother's wife, Judith Scott, Clive Scott, my brother's wife, Judith Scott. And after Simeon died, she founded the Bishop Simeon Trust, of which we're very proud to be patrons. And so I was sleeping under a roof with black priests and white priests where the rest of South Africa, if you were black and you came into the urban areas, there were the past laws and you you didn't sleep where you worked. You had to go back to the, to the townships and utter poverty. And so it was a, a landmark for me. And it was, I used to chuckle a little bit because at breakfast it would be quiet time. So there would be periods of silence. And I'm a chatterbox. You can imagine breakfast, eating my porridge, wanting to chat first thing in the morning. I'm a very much a morning person. Wake up absolutely bursting with energy. And I would be just mildly reprimanded <laughs> by Simeon, one of the other priests. Just, you know, Jonathan, this is quiet time. Just eat your porridge. And morning and evening, we would go to chapel. And I loved it because it was... A quiet time. It was a time for reflection. I had no commitments. I 
But I knew that I really now needed to start to focus on answering some of those questions. Professor Owens, what are you going to do? How are you going to make a living? How are you going to transfer, change the the dream? How are you going to put legs underneath it so as you can actually stay and do something with wildlife in Africa? And and, and also I was hugely inspired. I mean, living with those members of the community and seeing the difference when people have a purpose, when they have something larger themselves than themselves to commit to. And these were dangerous times for people like Simeon and the other priests because they were helping young black people to deal with the horrors of apartheid and persecution and killings. And we'll be looking at that in the next episode of our story, Becoming the Big Cat People.